Happy Thursday, prom party. This week's episode on Risk Cutters, a Love Story, uh, unsurprisingly, deals with depictions of suicide, self-harm, drug overdoses, and depression. And if I'm being honest, our discussions on this episode are very casual, uh, very relaxed, and honestly, oftentimes funny as we discuss the themes of the movie as well as our own personal experiences. So if the subject matter itself is something that you don't think that you are able to handle, as well as just the candid nature with which we're having these discussions, um, then consider this your content warning. And we totally understand if for some reason you need to skip this episode or you're not in the right place for this episode. But with all of that out of the way, let the music play. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I June prom party. <laughs> a happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to Harmony. We're having a good time this week. Hey, I don't really do much for my birthday, so if we're going to have a time, we might as well have a good bad time. Do you know what? I think a good bad time is exactly what we are in store for because Harmony and I's birthdays are two weeks apart. Uh, this is like the fun part of the year where we have our birthday episodes back to back. Just mm-hmm. kidding. There was one in between, but still. Yeah, um, basically back to back. So, you know, we're we're kind of skewing the format just a little bit, tiny bit, but also at the same time, really not. Yes. So similarly to last year when we did Sorority Boys, which most people could probably look at that and go, well, that's not a teen girl movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's coming of age in that it's still college level and we do college movies. Uh-huh. And it ve- dealt with gender stuff. Mm-hmm. But the argument that I kind of make as far as doing this movie, which is Risk Cutter's a Love Story, obviously from the title, is that my coming of age is going to be drastically different than, you know, a cis person's. Correct. I think that, you know, my teen girl experience is uh, is a bit unique. And this film was one of the most important films I'd ever seen in high school. Mm-hmm. And... It's it's a coming-of-age movie. It's a road trip movie. It's one of the deepest things you can view as a teen, I think, in mm-hmm. a similar way to other films we'll talk about when we get to our historical context. So I think that there's enough of a enough of an argument there for why we can cover this. And also, it's my birthday. I feel like it. <laughs> I mean, most importantly, it's your birthday. And that's why we're going to talk about a movie that means something to you. But I also feel like Risk Cutters, A Love Story, falls into this weird kind of limbo area where while this movie isn't necessarily about teenagers, it is a movie that is really popular with teen audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of falls into the same realm, in my opinion, as like Ghost World and Donnie Darko, where while Eternal Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine, yeah, that's another big one. Where while in two of those cases they are teenagers, this is the movie that like edgy teenagers kind of went after. Like this is not a movie that 
the the average teen was going to pursue. Like you kind of had to be a little a little rough around the edges to gravitate towards a film like this. Uh-huh. And you and I were both those people. <laughs> yeah, it explains a lot about us. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get in too deep, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. This announcement is for our listeners back home in Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth, a black and queer liberation celebration, is back. Taking place on Saturday, June 18th from noon to 6 p.m. at Black Punks Press, 4701 Perkins Avenue, Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth will feature live music, drag performances from local talent, art, free community, and harm reduction resources, local vendors, food, and educational workshops. For those that don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday for reverence, remembrance, and celebration. Through intentional planning and organizing, Mix Juneteenth will capture the spirit of Juneteenth holiday by providing a liberatory space that adheres to a black, queer, feminist praxis that centers abolition, community, solidarity with all oppressed communities, and anti-bigotry. Mix Juneteenth is a space that explicitly promotes an environment of respect, civility, and liberation that is free of harassment and police presence. Mixed Juneteenth is a free event with a suggested donation of $7 and $10 for non-black individuals. Pay up. No one will be turned away for inability to pay, though. Proceeds will be used to compensate performers and offset the cost of the event. Tickets can be reserved at https colon backslash backslash linktree slash Juneteenth. And remember, linktree is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E backslash mix Juneteenth. Alrighty, so according to our friend Dango, here is what Risk Cutter's A Love Story is about for those who may have never seen it. Despondent after breaking up with his girlfriend, Zia kills himself and wakes up in a bland purgatory populated by other suicides. He takes a job at Kamikaze Pizza and befriends a Russian rocker named Eugene. While trying to make the best of a very dull afterlife, learning that his ex-girlfriend has also killed herself, Zia embarks on a road trip with Eugene to find her, picking up a feisty hitchhiker along the way. I think that that pretty well sums up this movie. Because let's be honest here, when it comes to wrist cutters, this isn't really like a plot-heavy movie. This, This movie is a vibes movie. Totally. This movie very much is loose plot, but mostly vibes. Yeah, like, if you want to go ahead and look at this movie in terms of, like, how it handles its plot, when Eugene and Zia first meet McCall, like, she's hitchhiking, and it's like, well, where are you headed? And they're, like, east-ish. 
Mm-hmm. That's about how we handle our plot in this movie, like East-ish. Yes. So, birthday girl, tell the listeners, and I guess also me, what was your introduction to this movie? I discovered this movie and uh, illegally downloaded it because I was a big fan of the band Gogol Bardello mm-hmm. to the point where I also looked up uh, other things that Eugene Hutz had done. Uh, he did a movie with Madonna that I have not watched since high school. Uh, they did a little work on Everything is Illuminated with Elijah Wood. So like, like they were around in films at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was by far my favorite thing that they were involved in. And it really spoke to me as like a 16-year-old because I had seen this fairly fresh when it came out mm-hmm. purely because like uh, Gogol Bardello, when I first heard them, was like one of the most mind-blowing musical experiences I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as it's no surprise to anybody, uh, I was a ska kid, so I like the melding of styles and sounds and instruments you don't hear in a lot of other genres. Mm-hmm. Like pop music these days doesn't have a lot of horns. No, but we should. Rock doesn't have a lot of horns or, or, uh, or accordions or <laughs> violins, clarinets, etc. I, I like the melding of different worlds in that sense. So Gogol Bordello being a band that describes what they do as gypsy punk rock, I mean, they're Romani, so they're allowed to call it whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. So that filled a void that I had not felt since Ska. Mm -hmm. And it opened up like an entire like literal world of possibilities where I start to discover like Katzenjammer and Mano Negro and Kaiser's Orchestra and all these other things. And it all came back to like my love of this movie. Mm -hmm. So as someone who loves and processes most art through the music... The music's a huge part of why I love this movie. Uh, Tom Waits is also here, and Mm -hmm. he's great. But the theming of this movie meant the absolute world to me. And we talked a little bit earlier about how there there, there were some kids, uh, a little more more cloudy kids Mm -hmm. like you and me. Mm -hmm. And I did not show this movie to my friends purely because I was, I, I did not think that they would understand it the way that I do. No, that makes a lot of sense because... If you show this movie to people and they don't get it, then it paints you in a very odd way for some people. A bit. Uh, I, they, they might be a touch concerned. Yeah. And I think that's something really important to navigate with a movie like this is sometimes like, you know, you just want to listen to some sad girl shit mm-hmm. or you want to watch a movie that's about kind of a bummer situation And that's a way for you to feel good. It's a way for you to process those negative feelings and those bad vibes and kind of do it in a way that's safe. It doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, this is a cry for help. Mm -hmm. It could mean, hey, I'm processing something. Oh, this is not a movie about living out of fantasy world. Right. This isn't like uh, some Tim Burton kids who are like, man, I hope that when I die, I get to be a dapper skeleton that hangs out with stitched together corpse girls. Mm-hmm. This, this is not quite like that. It's not as uh, glamorous. Yeah. No, I, I understand that completely. I, I saw this movie shortly after it came out when I was in high school, and I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I liked it. But I think that I was not quite ready to process a lot of things um, in this movie because I had had my own issues with self-harm and suicidal ideation much younger. But then when I was in college and I had my my real rough go of it, I think I've talked about it on the show, but if I haven't, like, surprise, I had a really bad time when I was 18 turning 19. And I had kind of sparked up this friendship with a grad student at, at college. And, 
you know, she was really into to movies and stuff too. And we started talking about it and she invited me over for like a, a brunch slash movie day. And I like brought over a bunch of stuff from the, uh, the cafeteria of my, my school. Cause like breakfast was dummy cheap. So I could like mm-hmm. make big ass Belgian waffles and get like a whole plate of eggs and stuff for like $2. It was awesome. <laughs> so I brought a bunch of breakfast over and we, we watched wrist cutters and it was because I had confided and I was like, Hey, yeah, no, I just got back from going home and I fully had intended to take my own life. And then I did not. And, um, now I'm just kind of like processing that. And she was like, all right, let's watch this movie. I'm like, let's talk about it. And it was just a really emotional and really incredible experience because I had somebody who was willing to talk to me about the feelings of wanting to die in a way where I didn't feel like they were concerned and like trying to like convince me out of it. Like mm-hmm. she knew that I was like not going to do it, but it was like, okay, cool. I know that you're not going to do it. So let's have like a matter of fact conversation about like, life and death and what it means and you know she had told me that she had lost her sister to suicide and how this movie helped her process things and I don't know like it was just very very strange but that is the memory that I hold on to with this movie more so than my initial watch I think that's really beautiful honestly because like that's what this movie is it's it's a very matter-of-fact way of describing this feeling Mm -hmm. and it's normalized because this is literally a world where everybody knows the specific feeling that you felt yes and I think that that is a feeling that is really hard to explain to some people um because one it's a feeling that I hope no one ever has to feel Um, And obviously, like, if that is something that you feel, please talk to somebody, please get help. But once you've been there and once you've been pushed to that place, it's hard to relate to people who've never been there. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I have talked about this before, but like a big reason that you and I get along so well is I'm really sorry to quote rent at you, but like. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm looking for On bag- my birthday. <laughs> I'm looking for baggage that goes with mine. And it's like, you know, our baggage is very different. Like they come from different places, but they go together. Like I, we can understand each other mm-hmm. on a level that most people can't understand us because of what we've gone through. And like, that's not trauma bonding, but it does offer a, a different way of looking at the world. It's a different perspective that a lot of people don't have there's nothing wrong with that. I hope no one ever has to have this perspective. Mm-hmm. But once but you do. It's all too common. Yeah, but once you do have it, it's like I, I can't see the world in any other ways. Like my vision mm-hmm. has been changed permanently. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, that's how I feel about this movie. And I think that's why this is a movie that resonates with both of us. Yeah, especially because I have not revisited this movie in a while. Um, And I think this is actually a pretty good segue to go into our context because I was worried it wouldn't hold up. I was absolutely worried. I even told Harmony that I didn't want to announce we were doing it until we watched it because I didn't want to, you know, say we were going to do it and sound really excited and then watch it. And then suddenly it's really, really, really problematic. And we're like, oh, shit. Well, I wasn't worried about it being problematic. I was just worried that it wouldn't feel the same. It wouldn't hit the same. Um, so, So going into our context for this movie... Uh, this is released in like 2006 on the festival circuit and then 2007 proper. So some of the movies that we're looking at for teen releases this year or coming of age releases this year, um, they're not really having anything to do with this. Like Sydney White, Hairspray, Stomp the Yard, Super Bad. Like 
not really what we're looking at in terms of what Wrist Cutters, A Love Story is bringing to the table. I mean, we did Hairspray last week, so I know. we went deep into that. I know. I'm just saying, like, that's not that's not how this movie's no, operating. No, this is a whole different energy. Yeah, this is an independent release, so it doesn't really give a shit about what else is going on, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the original Hairspray that we talked about last week. Yep. So... Something that I looked up is that I wanted to check out, like, well, what other indie releases are are going on around mm-hmm. this time? Where are the indie darlings? Yes. And in looking up 2000s indie films, uh, one of the first results that comes up, I think it was the second one, is 2000s hipster movies. Oh, great. Love it. <laughs> and here's the thing. That's a very accurate way of describing what many of these movies were. 100%. Yes, it is. That said... One of the reasons that I was really worried about revisiting this movie is because some of these choices, like, uh, dare I say, a garden state? Mm-hmm. Garden state doesn't hit right when you're not, like, 16 anymore. Agreed. Same thing I would say with, like, 500 Days of Summer. Same thing with uh, the Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of, like, these sort of indie or, or, like, studio indie films that just don't feel right if you're not the right age, even if you were at the time. Mm-hmm. So... Like, I'm going through this list of these hipster movies from the 2000s, and you have a number of Wes Anderson movies. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. You have, like, Amelie. Ooh, it's foreign. Culture. Mm -hmm. Pinched hand emoji. (laughs) You have stuff like Garden State, Eternal Sunshine, uh, Brick, Juno. Brick is so good, though. Yeah, right. Ryan Johnson has been a genius from day one. (laughs) Um, You get Juno, and then once Juno happens and wins a shit ton of awards... It explodes. Then you get, like, the late 2000s studio indie picks, where you get, like, Nick and Nora and Adventureland and a lot of films that I hold near and dear to my heart. But the one that I kind of want to focus on is Little Miss Sunshine. I love Little Miss Sunshine so much. So do I. And I have that's another one I haven't revisited maybe since high school. But if if I could paint a narrative, if I could make a story out of this particular subgenre of hipster indie films from the 2000, mm-hmm. I think Little Miss Sunshine is a really important film when looking at it in this light because prior to, say, like 2004 or give or take a couple of years, you're looking at a lot of... Gen X coming-of-age movies. Oh, totally. So you have these things in the 90s about, like, college-age kids. Oh, you like, get, like, reality around. bites and yeah. stuff like that. Or, or singles or or Empire Records. High or Fidelity. High Fidelity, Go. Like, you have, like, a long 10-year stretch mm-hmm. of these, like, kind of college-age kids going through very deliberate Gen X problems. Once you get to something like Little Miss Sunshine, which is a film about generational problems you're it's like the exact moment that there's this passing of the torch where you start to now get millennial coming of age movies with millennial drama that fills the same sort of niche only now it's branded as hipster right (laughs) so these are now much more deliberate millennial stories than they were like 90s gen x teen stories Mm -hmm. and I think that that's really fascinating to pinpoint it to a specific movie, even though it's clearly not that specific movie, but it it just seems too perfect. No, I agree with you because since it is dealing with all of the generations kind of like stuck together, that very much feels like the bridge between the two worlds. And I feel like a movie like Risk Cutters does a similar thing because Eugene and Zia are not super close in age. Mm-mm. And that's 
part of it. Like in this in this like pseudo purgatory afterlife sort of thing, they have each other because they have each other. Mm-hmm. And they do have a little bit of a generational divide because Eugene tells stories about like his family and his little brother and you have Zia whose life was kind of just getting started mm-hmm. and then it ended. I think she cried at my funeral. I don't mean to brag about it or anything, but pretty sure she did. Sometimes I can picture her talking about me to some guy she feels really close to. You're never gonna see him again, you know? About how they lowered me into the grave all pathetic and shriveled up a melted chocolate bar or something about how we never actually got a chance and the guy fucks her real nice fuck that's all about making her feel better yeah so so speaking of his life ending let's talk about this opening scene real quick Mm -hmm. so this movie opens with zia kind of like he's, he's slumming it around his apartment it's a little disarray it's maybe like middle of the afternoon and he just decides, oh, I'm going to clean some stuff up. I'm going to tidy up my home. And Tom Waits is playing. And if you could slap like some indie folk music, maybe, I don't know, The Shins, a la Garden State, mm-hmm. or just like some generic stock music, like we're launching a Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. This seems like the end of a different movie where a guy's getting his life together. Mm-hmm. But it's not. This man is listening to Tom Waits in the middle of the day. And that is a very specific kind of depression. <laughs> Right, right, right. Tom Tom Waits is purely reserved for like when the sun is down. <laughs> if you're listening to him in the middle of the day, it, it's concerning. <laughs> and rightfully so, because he goes into the bathroom and slits his wrist and falls on the floor and starts to die and then notices that he missed a single dust bunny in the corner. And it's like, oh, fuck. And the thing is, as the scene was happening, I just looked over at you and I'm like, that would be me. Oh, I'd be so pissed. You're just going to have like so much regret that you didn't get this single this dust single bunny and dust that is bunny. your only regret. Yeah, because at that point you're bleeding out. You can't even like reach to clean it up anyway because then you're just going to make an even bigger mess. Mm-hmm. And like he clearly didn't want to make a mess anyway. Like the falling to the ground was not part of the plan. No. He, he, it, was, it was all caught in the sink. It was all in the sink. He had a plan. He had it all laid out. He didn't want anyone to be burdened with having to clean up after him, which is an unfortunately very common thing. Mm-hmm. Hi, I am that person. In both of my instances, I was very ceremonious with my my surroundings and wanting it to be clean and tidy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this, this scene hits me real hard. <laughs> yeah, well, he cleans up because... One, he doesn't want anybody else to have to clean up his mess. But also, I feel like there's this idea of like, well, my parents are going to come in. And I really don't want them to be like, fuck, look at our messy child. <laughs> right. You live like this? Because like his parents seem judgmental. Yeah. Like, we only get like a little bit of stories with them and maybe like one dream sequence. But they, they seem like the kind of parents who are like, oh, my God, my baby. Oh, my God. He didn't fold his laundry before he died. Mm-hmm. And this whole scene captures the specific energy of this movie, which is like the juxtaposition of daylight with Tom Waits, the like the dark comedy of missing a single dust bunny as you're dying. Like we are dealing with like a dark comedy that has a lot of heart and feeling behind it. And it's so well encapsulated in like the opening 60, 90 seconds. Oh, absolutely. And I think 
the the idea of kind of like the ceremonious like cleaning of the house is because you don't want people to make inferences about you or like oh look at all of this laundry in the corner like he must have been so depressed that's why mm-hmm. he couldn't put his laundry away mm-hmm. because that's what people do like if if you're a victim of a crime or if you die by suicide or anything to that regard when they investigate your room that's the stuff they do oh they is, judge you they try to psychoanalyze yeah. you based on what you've left behind yeah. and that can be very invasive because you're not there to explain things. This sounds really dumb, but it reminds me sometimes of like me wanting to yell at the Netflix algorithm where it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like I watched that thing one time because it was ironic. Please stop recommending me things that are like it. I don't actually like it. Yeah. And it's like the same thing. Like I'm looking around our house right now and it's like over to the right is we have like a Beetlejuice doll and it's like, yeah, we really like Beetlejuice and we like, you know, some timber and stuff, but that doesn't mean that I want you to like completely redo our entire house to make it look like a Tim Burton Wonderland. Like that's not what that means. Please no. Alice in Wonderland is so ugly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So like we don't we don't need any of, of that kind of thing, but there's so many things people could infer about you based on what they see. Mm-hmm. And if you're not there to provide the context, like nobody wants that. Exactly. And so Zia goes to uh, this purgatory where it's kind of always either overcast and gloomy or way too bright and unpleasant to look at. And like really hot. Yeah, it's like somewhere dry and bland looking and flat and there's no vegetation. And everything there is just a little bit shittier than it is here. That's like the big difference and you Mm -hmm. can't smile. And that's it. And you're kind of surrounded by, honestly, a lot of a-holes. Yeah, so something I wanted to cite is uh, our friend Chingy, uh, if you're on the internet, it's the gay Chingy, but uh, she wrote an article for Mel Magazine about movies for Halloween, and she nominated Wrist Cutters, which I thought was really funny. Um, But how she describes it is, if you kill yourself, what awaits you in the afterlife? A cloudy heaven? A fiery hell? Or maybe just another plane of existence that's almost exactly like the world you know, only shittier, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is, you know, absolutely the perfect way to to describe it. Um, but she talks about, like, w- like, why Risk Cutters really stands out is with its world building. The settings all express a limbo-esque liminalism consisting mostly of dumpy bars, rundown gas stations, and long stretches of barren desert. Colors are muted. Everyone's skin looks drained of any color. The soundtrack is built mostly out of musicians who have killed themselves. Mm -hmm. And its world-building strength also extends to the writing with filmmaker Goran Dukic. I absolutely butchered that, and I'm so sorry. Doing an exceptional work of crafting a purgatory that is charmingly miserable by focusing on all of the little things that make life just a little bit more awful. There are no stars in the sky. Appliances work poorly. Everyone's in a bad mood, and it's literally impossible to smile. It's all so remarkably unremarkable that it could make someone want to kill themselves a second time, though no one does for fear of going to an even worse place. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is exactly the world that we are in. And it's so easily understood. Mm-hmm. Like, Immediately. You don't really have to explain this world. Like, you get little bits and pieces of it, and you just kind of go, oh, Eugene's headlights don't work. Oh, mm-hmm. except they do because there's little miracles sometimes, but only mm-hmm. sometimes and only in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but like as far as how this world is built, something that I really love about this concept of the afterlife is that uh, it is unbelievably secular. Yes, I love that. Like even the people that are remotely religious are kind of seen as extremists. Yeah, because if you think about this in terms of like heaven and hell are the most popular forms of what the afterlife is, those are inherently tied to religion. And like, sure, there's the idea of like, well, maybe Tom Waits is an angel. 
maybe the people mm-hmm. in charge are sort of angels. They wear white. There's feathers around. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a version of that. But that's kind of it. Otherwise, it's just like, hey, you died. You ended up here. That's it. Yeah. It's this completely removed from religion idea of what purgatory is. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit more philosophical, and it reminds me a lot of The Good Place, actually, mm-hmm. um, and how they handle the idea of the afterlife. And The Good Place plays with the language of heaven and hell and angels and devils and things like that because I think they just needed easy shorthand because sure. it's a sitcom. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it is still pretty secular in terms of how it's handling of things because it judges people not based on like a set of biblical rules, but on a set of like being a good human rules. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what we're playing with here with with wrist cutters. I agree. Absolutely. So since this is a road movie and also one that works by showing flashbacks, trying to like break people down, I think is just going to end up being a big complicated mess. So let's uh, let's go on a road trip and let's go kind of streamlined on this. Sure. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. So Zia and Eugene meet at a bar while Zia is playing a game with some girls that he met there, uh, trying to guess how everyone in the bar uh, offed themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's this moral question of like, hey, is this in bad taste? And it's like, yeah, but that's the point. Right. Because like, I don't know, like, what kind of secrets do you have? We already know the deepest secrets. It's just a matter of the how, not the what. It reminds me a lot of how the people interact with each other in the Black Mirror episode of San Junipero. Oh, yeah, Because sure. for the most part, everybody there is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, like, the occasional visitors. But for the most part, people are dead. And there's a lot of discussions like that where, mm-hmm. you know, she's sitting on top of a building and is like, how many people down there do you think are dead? I don't know, like 80%. Like, it's just a very matter-of-fact thing. Which I love. Right, I do too. I love that it's so matter-of-fact. And, like, what's interesting about this game is that this game that they're playing, like, is it in bad taste? Yes, obviously. But when everybody in this world has died by suicide, is it any more in bad taste than the games people play at bars where they're like, hey, would you? Mm-hmm. Would you take that person home? Would you fuck them? Like you're still being gross and, and uh, analyzing and assessing them without their consent. You're just now in a world where you know 100% with full certainty that everybody has died by suicide. So that's kind of like that world's version of the game that is played um, in the mortal realm. True. And like I don't know, just the whole vibes of this movie is that despite it being very glum, Mm-hmm. I, I think people are defeated in a way where it's like, well, I, I ended up here. So clearly mm-hmm. I got beaten down in that sense. But there's this idea of like, I've felt worse things. So I don't think, I think maybe people are grumpy, mm-hmm. but they're not like, I don't think anybody's going to be like, I can't believe you're playing this game with me. How dare you? And they're going to be like really devastated. Right. I don't think anybody has that feeling in them here. No. And I think that I'm really, really glad that you brought up that point of like, they've all felt something worse. Oh, they felt the worst thing imaginable. Yeah. And I think that that is such like a very weird space to navigate because Frequently, we talk about how, like, you know, tragedy sparring is is not a thing. Just because somebody else breaks their leg doesn't mean that your broken finger hurts any less. Like, that's that's a thing that we all know. Yeah. But at the same time, it is also one of those things where it's like, wow, I've been through way worse. Like, I, I sometimes think about people that say, like, the meanest, cruelest, most horrific things to me on the internet. I've had people stalk me, dox me, threaten my life, threaten me with all sorts of bodily harm and assault. And sometimes it gets to me, but for the most part, I'm like, 
I've been through way worse than this. Like, you think this is going to bother me? Mm-hmm. Well, look at people tell me I'm fat. I'm like, you, was that supposed to hurt? Because it didn't. Good try. Try again. Find yeah. new material. And I think that's kind of the energy that a lot of people are operating in within this world. Where, like, if they could express, like, laughter, then it would all read as that sort of energy of just, like, <laughs> good try. Try again. That doesn't bother me. Yeah. But, like, because, you know, that's not an emotion they're allowed to express in this world, then it just becomes apathy. Mm-hmm. I, I think that pain's relative. It so, is. So, like, you know, you have Nick Offerman in this movie. And he's like a soldier who couldn't take war anymore and shot himself. So he's got a big hole in the top of his head. You have Eugene who decided, hey, someone said my band sucks. So I'm going to pour a beer on my guitar and electrocute myself at a gig that Iggy Pop almost came to, Mm -hmm. but didn't. Uh, Like you have Eugene's little brother who just decides, oh, our soccer team lost a game and we're better and we should have won. So I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And... It's all these relative feelings where, like, this is the worst thing you've ever felt, and you've hit your breaking point. So everyone's hit a breaking point. Mm-hmm. And what got them there? Like, maybe you're the mechanic and his, you know, younger gay lover, and you died in a hot tub together because you couldn't be together. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this thing in life that pushed you to a breaking point that puts you here. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I kind of want to focus on, and it is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is the soccer game. Yeah. Where you have Eugene's little brother and uh, Eugene's whole family is in like purgatory. Because they have all died by suicide. His all whole family. Of, all of them have, which is like really wild to think about. But now they're all together and mm-hmm. they love each other. And like, that's beautiful. And though. they have beautiful Russian dinners. Oh my God. Yes. Like, what was it? Uh, you're, you can tell someone's age by how much they eat. And mm-hmm. the people who eat the most are the hardest workers, which is like such like a like an old world parable that I love. Yeah. But there's a flashback to Eugene's little brother uh, being 10 years old and crying about the soccer game that he had lost. And he's got like a jump rope around his neck and he's standing on top of the kitchen table. And he's like, Eugene, you have to come out here and tell me the meaning of life. Otherwise, I'm going to do it. And like he lights up a cigarette and says, like, get, get them off the table. Get, I, I'll tell you, get off the table. Mm-hmm. And when he gets down, he slaps the shit out of him. He really clocks one on him. Oh, my God. <laughs> So aside from that just being a funny scene in like a really dark way, like there are so many different ways you can interpret that one scene. And I'm curious of how do you read that? Because back in like the present, um, his brother ended up living for years later and then ended up offing himself. But he says, oh, I may have done it way sooner if it hadn't been for Eugene slapping me in the face. Uh So how do you read what that slap means or what the little brother gleaned from that? I'm going to quote Boy Meets World, which is life's tough. Get a helmet. Yeah. That is how I've always interpreted that scene where Eugene is like, you don't understand that like life is hard. It's not fair. Because that's the thing that he's crying about is we're the better team, but we lost. We just couldn't get the ball in the net. Yeah. What's the point of of living if you can be the best and it still not turn out right? And when he gets him to get off the table and he smacks him in the face, he's basically being like, yeah, it sucks sometimes, and you're going to have to learn how to deal with it sucking. Yeah. And I think that that is a really powerful way to talk to people because, because it's it's tough to navigate wanting to express the, the reality, like the harsh realities of the world with people because you don't want it to be traumatizing. Like you don't want to scare people, mm-hmm. but you also don't want them 
to then get so consumed by like the possibilities of it being bad that they then expect it. Like you, you want to find that balance Mm -hmm. and that balance is different for every single person. Like there is no universal way to have these conversations. So like for a really good example, I am trying my hardest and I know that I'm probably going to slip up from time to time that you're not supposed to say committed suicide took their own life. Like these are expressions you're not supposed to say. You're supposed to say died by suicide because somehow studies have shown that that is best practice. And the only problem with that is how can you determine best practice when it's going to be different for everybody? Uh Like for someone like me, I am probably the person that they're thinking of when they're developing best practice. Somebody who has had suicidal ideation, who has intrusive thoughts, who has, you know, clinical depression, who is bipolar, who has CPTSD, like all of the just multitude of issues that I have. Mm -hmm. They're thinking of me when they're determining best practice. Mm -hmm. But I also don't give a shit. So like if you say committed suicide, took your own life, died by suicide, offed yourself. Gonna chop suey myself. Chop suey yourself. Like, if you say any of those things to me, like, they don't, it doesn't matter. Like, they all mean the same thing to me. It's just semantics at this point. Mm -hmm. But for some people, those semantics are really important. Yeah, well, pain's relative. Because it's all relative. And that's what I think is so wonderful about this movie because it's really easy to look at Eugene's little brother wanting to die because of this this loss but you have to think like at the age he is right now this probably is the worst thing that he's ever felt oh it is and like that's a real feeling and that's a real sensation of pain Mm -hmm. and you don't want to dismiss that either so like eugene's approach to it is like tough love but it's it's good because he gets him off the table yeah and that's the most important thing you want to do he gets him off the table Mm mm-hmm the way I process that, like, what, first of all, I agree with everything you're saying, but Thank like you. the additional way that I sort of process that scene is him slapping him to say, like, because Eugene's a gruff guy. 100. Their whole family is. Yeah, they're, they're fucking a, a wild Russian family. They're lovely. But him slapping him in the face is saying, like, oh, you think that hurts? This hurts. Right. Did, did, did this hurt more mm-hmm. than what you were just feeling? Cool. You're going to have to, like, build up tolerance because, like, you are too young and this is not painful enough for you to be feeling what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what that has always felt like to me. Mm-hmm. Um, which, like, being 10, you have a lot of big emotions. You have a lot of these, like, fickle, intense yeah, and you feelings. Don't, and you don't know what to do with them. Exactly. So, like, I'm not blaming this kid. But, like, I think Eugene's approach of, of very tough love is it's not wrong. Like, he understands his family. I trust that he knows how to handle his little brother and his family because they all love each other and they're around each other constantly. So he knows exactly what he needs in that moment, which is not like, oh, hey, buddy, sometimes things are hard. Like, no, that's not what he needs. Right. And that's such a really good point because there's this very weird thing that we're dealing with right now where when people speak on their own experiences, a lot of people are receiving that information and interpreting it as, well, this is how you think it should be for everybody. And that is not true. Mm -hmm. For Eugene's little brother, this is exactly the approach that he needs. Mm -hmm. For someone else, that's probably the last thing that they need. Yeah. The important thing is you have to know your your people, like know your family, know your friends, know them well enough to know what do they need in this moment? What is going to help them? Because for for an example, my sister and I are entirely different people mm-hmm. with very different needs. The way that 
conflict is is handled with me is going to be extremely different than conflict with her. I don't need kid gloves. My sister needs kid gloves. I know she won't be offended by me saying that, but she does. Like, she needs that. Um, if you come at her too hard, she shuts the fuck down. Whereas, like, I will yell back in your face. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's the kind of conversation and conflict resolution that works for me. Mm-hmm. That does not work for her. And so I know that there are people who see that scene and they're like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't believe he would do that. Like, that's so diff- That's so awful. That's so rude. He- this is a child who needs compassion. And it's like, but is he? Because he's telling you, as like uh, somebody who lived years later, that that's exactly what he needed. And mm-hmm. that's why he did not die in that mm-hmm. moment. So who are you to say what this kid needs? Because clearly his family knew. Like he didn't need a second place trophy. He didn't need you to award you this thing to make him feel better. He, mm-hmm. need, he needed a wake up call. Yeah. And he got it. And he, he stayed alive for years later because of it. Yeah. So... Moving on from there, uh, while Zia is at, like, a supermarket, he ends up running into someone he knows from, you know, the living. Who's played by Jake Busey, and it's weird. This, yes. And also, this whole cast is a marvelous menagerie of character actors whom I love. Agreed. Like, some of them wouldn't blow up yet. Like, we mentioned Nick Offerman. Like, he was still a character actor at the time. Uh, Like, you have Will Arnett popping up, like, fairly early into his career later on. Like, there's just... Those are the big ones, but, like, there's so many of, hey, I know that guy. Hey, I know that guy. Hey, I know that lady that I just love popping up in here. Like, the one that blew my mind was when you were like, oh, by the way, the nun's in this. And I'm like, yep, there she yep, is. Yep, Bonnie Aarons is in this. <laughs> with, her, with her scary, beautiful face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Zia runs into this guy, and he finds out that his ex-girlfriend ended up, uh, ended up committing sewer slide mm-hmm. shortly after him, like a month or two later. And we don't really get specifically why they broke up, but I think the implication is that Desiree had cheated on him and they broke up because of it. That seems to be the implication based on her like being like, oh, I'm so sorry I hurt you and stuff like that. And he goes, oh, I have a purpose now. I have, I have something to do. So he quits his job at Kamikaze Pizza, which is the saddest looking pizza. All of that pizza looks like what people think Chuck E. Cheese pizza is. That's pizza that's been sitting out at like a Little Caesars under a heat lamp for a long time. This is end of shift CeCe's pizza pasta buffet. Kind of like I've I've been to internet cafes in like middle of nowhere, Ohio, just because I needed to use the internet. And it was like 2010 and we didn't have smartphones at the time. And I've gone in there and they have like, oh, free pizza buffet and internet and gambling. And I was like, oh, this sounds like I need two of those things. And that shit is some frozen Red Baron from 1994. No, 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 no. The ones I've been to, it's like usually a giant ass, like three foot sheet pizza. But there's like two corner slices left. And there's this energy of like, we're not ordering another one until you finish this one. And nobody (laughs) wants them. Yeah, because who wants it? Exactly. And you don't know how long it's been sitting there. (laughs) That's the kind of pizza we're looking at at Kamikaze Pizza. (laughs) Yeah. So he ends up quitting his job. They get in Eugene's like shitty car that has a black hole under the passenger seat and the headlights don't work and it's a ratty broken down mess. But like, yeah, whatever. It's your piece of shit car and you love it. Mm -hmm. And they set off east-ish. Mm-hmm. I'm not sitting in the back. Why not? Because everybody knows the guy in the back seat doesn't have a cock. What? That's a fact. And the guy in the back seat had the cock, he wouldn't be back there in the first place. Well, I, I mean, I got a cock, man, so I can, I'm not... Mike, do you have a cock? Yeah, I have a cock. 
Big fat one. The things really pick up when they run into McCall. Oh, Shannon Sossaman. Oh. Light of my life. Shannon Sossaman was like the manic pixie dream girl of my dreams in high school. Uh-huh. But from this and like 40 days and 40 nights, mm-hmm. like be- she's beautiful. She's spunky. She's cool and doesn't put up with anyone's bullshit. I loved her. Yeah, I love her so very much. And for all of my fellow Yellow Jacket stands out there, I am praying that she plays adult Lottie. I would give anything for Shannon Sossman to play adult Lottie. Okay, off my Yellow Jackets uh, (laughs) soapbox there. All right. Um, But this ends up building this like perfect dichotomy between them where I really love how these three characters play off of each other. I do too. And something that I find really fascinating about McCall's character is that from the get-go, she's pretty much like, I think that I'm here by mistake. Yeah. And we find out that she is somebody who OD'd mm-hmm. um, accidentally. And yeah, that's not that's not somebody who is trying to die by suicide. That's an accident. Yeah. And it really got me thinking like how many times that we hear about celebrities or people in our lives that OD and immediately the the speculation is, well, was it on purpose or mm-hmm. was it an accident or, oh my gosh, how could they have not known all this was in their system? It was clearly on purpose. And I don't think it's on purpose as much as people think that it is. I think people almost want it to have been purposeful because at least then you can process that. An accident is infinitely more tragic. Yeah, It's way harder to deal with because then it's it just adds an extra level of tragedy because there's almost some weird sense of comfort if that's what they wanted mm-hmm. because then you can be like, well, they're not in pain anymore yeah. and you know this is sad for everybody and this is a tragedy. But if it's an accident, then it is like a super tragedy. Yeah, like the thing with McCall being here and saying like, well, I shouldn't be here. There's this feeling of whenever you watch a prison movie and there's the argument of like, well, I'm innocent. And it's like, well, we're all innocent. We're all the same kind of guilty. Mm -hmm. And like this purgatory is like the crime and punishment of committing an act where like, Mm -hmm. hey, you killed someone. It happened to be you, Mm -hmm. but you killed someone and now you're in purgatory jail. Right. Like that's what it feels like as far as like the argument. And everyone else is like, no, why would I believe you? We all committed the same crime to end up here. Exactly. And like I love that as a similarity in this. But the thing with her and kind of everyone else here is I think they're all so depressed because the majority of them seem to be impoverished in life. Many of them are. And when you're dealing with like being broke and doing drugs, you don't know what's in that particular batch. You don't know how strong Mm -hmm. that particular batch is. Like you're kind of flying blind as far as like doing recreational drugs like that goes. There's a lot less quality assurance for yourself medicating. Yeah, I've had several friends who have OD'd and it's what you said where some people are like, oh, well, I think they wanted to. And I'm like, I, I'm not convinced they wanted to because mm-hmm. I've been around them and like, no, there was a lot of life still back in there. I don't, I don't believe that was on purpose. I mm-hmm. think it was just a way of, of dulling the pain. Like we, we had not reached rock bottom yet. Mm-hmm. Like that's what this movie is about. It's about reaching rock bottom and hitting the point where you're like, well, I can't dig myself out anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that like you can you can think you're there, but unless you've gotten all the way there, you have not hit rock bottom yet. You know when you've hit rock bottom. Yeah, you have not given up yet. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 know, it's one of those like if you know, you know. If you know, you know, and very much so 
you can tell McCall was not there. Yeah. And even Eugene makes a comment. I'm going to misquote it, but he even says that nobody who's trying to, you know, die by suicide with drugs, it's their first time doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only if, if, if you die your first time, it was an accident. And that's what we learn about her. No, but you even see that, like, in terms of how she's existing in this world compared in relation to everyone else, where she's snarky, but she still has, like, more life in her than a lot of other people here. Like, she still has optimism. Absolutely. And I feel like the optimism that she has, like, I don't want to manic pixie dream girl her too hard, but that is definitely what starts to change Zia's perspective on the the world that they are in because there is life here now. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's that, but honestly, I think there's a sense of freedom. Um, we talked about this a little bit after we finished watching the episode, and I don't know if people who grew up in maybe like a metropolitan area can relate to this, but growing up in a, like a more open area, like a, a rural area or maybe a more desolate area, like the desert that they're in in this movie... There was a thing when I was in high school that doesn't exist anymore because of just the the outrageous prices of gas, where you would just drive for fun. You'd get like three, four friends in a car, Mm -hmm. and then you would just drive, and that's how you would spend a night. Did you ever play Padiddle? Yeah. Oh, my God. I was never good at Padiddle. I I spaced out too much. I was very good at Padiddle. I was- You would be. I was a maniac. I was not getting naked. (laughs) No, we never did that one. We did punchies. Oh, yeah. We did naked. That was- we were whores. Of course you were. I was in a car <laughs> with all boys, so we didn't do that. Oh, I was in mixed company. Hey. Yeah, well, it's different when it's not just a sausage fest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, like, that was a thing where I remember being, like, I don't know, it, it being, like, 2010. Gas prices were, like, way up. We're, like, post-recession. And, like, I would have a friend come over, and he would just go, like, hey, do you want to just go, like, drive for a while? Like, I don't know, then 2 a.m. we'll go to the Blue Sky restaurant because it was 24 hours. And we'll get food. So we would go drive around for a while, drive up by the lake, whatever. And I remember saying to him, like, dude, are you sure gas is really expensive right now? He's like, yeah, I just got paid. I can afford it. And like, that's what you spent your money on. That was that was your freedom Mm -hmm. was just being able to drive and get away for a little bit. And I feel like obviously McCall is part of it. But I think the idea of like, oh, he doesn't have a job anymore. He doesn't have responsibilities. Like, where the fuck do you have to be? You're not. You're not getting any older. Yeah. Like, it, there's this sense of almost liberation that gives this an extremely youthful vibe. Of you don't have school, you don't have a job. There is this almost no responsibilities feel that is extremely teenage. Yeah, that can be very liberating. And going back to this article Chingy wrote for Mel, she says. Its approach to the dark subject matter of suicide is so airily light that it makes the film feel like more than just a slog of people being miserable. Eugene is content in being rude and unfulfilled, having gotten used to it, but neither Zia nor McCall want to acclimate, with both of them yearning to get back to the things they had while alive. The bond that builds between the three of them is equally endearing as funny, as if their shared misery helps them understand each other better in this muted world. It is a testament to everything being a bit more tolerable when you've got people by your side who get you. And I think that that is the true magic of this movie, is when we talk about like misery loves company, or expressions of that ilk, 
we're usually referring to the idea of like, well, if you're miserable, then everyone else around you is going to be miserable and it's just going to drag people down. So like. Is that what it is? I always thought it was more vindictive than that where they want to make you miserable. Like there's this malicious aspect to it. That's the second interpretation. Yeah. So I was like, you know, and that's the other interpretation is also like if someone's going to be miserable, they're going to make you miserable so that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. This movie though is kind of misery loves company, but it's this idea of misery is a lot more tolerable when you have other people that are equally as miserable or understand what it's like to be that miserable because Mm -hmm. now you're not alone. Yeah. Like the thing that I compared this movie to um, for BJ is so there's a movie that came out that she was a massive fan of me. Not so much. (laughs) Uh, It's called she dies tomorrow. I love she dies tomorrow. I, it was not for me. It's a little too art house for your taste. I understand. That plus I think the way that it handles like depression and the thoughts of suicide, it felt like a disease in which like it felt like misery loves company where it's Mm -hmm. like, hey, you're bringing this in and it's spreading like a virus to everyone Mm -hmm. versus this where I mean, there's obviously joy to it. It's like a dark comedy, but also like everybody already did it. So they're just like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And there's. Almost this, I don't want to even call it nihilism, but just like this this devil-may-care attitude to mm-hmm. life or life after life. And this speaks my language while handling the exact same topic of like the normal feeling of depression. Mm-hmm. This is so much more my speed. And mm-hmm. then you had an interesting anecdote about these two movies in particular. I did, which was really, really fun, is that So She Dies Tomorrow is directed by Amy Seibitz, who is a brilliant, wonderful filmmaker, a brilliant, wonderful actor. She's just such a remarkable talent. Um, She's in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> she's, <laughs> you pointed it out. <laughs> yeah. She's uh, she's just there, like, hanging out, watching watching movies with them, you know, on the on the commune compound thing whatever you want to call it and i think it's neller's home for happy campers or some yeah shit like it's, that. it's his little camp it's yeah. a camp that's what they call it but yeah she's just there just hanging out and it's really interesting to me i was like wow there's a connective tissue between like harmony's feel good about suicidal thoughts movie and my feel good about suicidal thoughts movie and it's that Amy Simons is in yours and she made mine. Yeah. <laughs> what a <laughs> weird coincidence. It's very bizarre that there is like that one degree away from each other. Yeah, it's so wild. And it was one of those things where we were talking about the cameos because um, Harmony was like, oh, do you remember this person is in here referring to Nick Offerman? And I was trying to think of who would be the possible cameos. I was and like, I was oh, like, oh, they're a big deal now. And you're like, is it Will Arnett? I was like, like it's not Will Arnett. Will Arnett. And you're like, no, 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 not that one. And I'm sitting there and I was like, I don't, you know, Bonnie Aarons is in it, but like, that's not somebody you would clock. And I was like, oh my God, Amy Simons is in this movie. Yeah. Like this movie has so many like good character roles from people that I I love. Like uh, I love uh, Zia's roommate who is just the, like, I think he's a like, Croatian or something. He has a really thick accent. And I just like, you have my cottage cheese. Yeah. I just like how he says cottage cheese because it makes me laugh. Yeah. I don't know. There's just like a lot of these little bit parts with things that are so fascinating, both from like, who went on to do other things? Like, who'd have thought that Bonnie Aarons, who's a background character in this movie, would go on to be like immediately recognizable and also somehow make a second appearance on this podcast? Yeah, because uh, for those that don't know, Bonnie Aarons is the Baroness in The Princess Diaries. <laughs> yeah, so like just the whole cast of this is really fascinating and... This movie just makes me feel very happy and very alive in a way that it's clearly designed to, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't make sense. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, but like 
I think this is a movie that either you feel it or you don't. Well, oh, absolutely. This movie either works for you or y- you feel very much against it. I don't know if they're like middle of the road wrist cutters fans. I don't know either. And it's such a thing that like is either just a part of you or it isn't in a way that like this feels familiar. Mm-hmm. This feels warm and cozy despite everything about it being like on paper the bleakest thing imaginable. Well, yeah, and I think, and this is just my theory, this is not backed by evidence or science or anything, but I feel like in our cultural attempt to help people not feel bad, we've stigmatized even talking about feeling bad, and we've made it so that if you are feeling bad, you know, that means like we we need to get you help and we need to hear all of your feelings and we need to handle you with care. And again, that's not what everybody needs. Sometimes you need Eugene to smack you in the face. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to be able to kind of poke fun at what you've been through and like find the humor in the situation. And we've stopped doing that. We very much have treated it like, well, this is the one thing you can't laugh about. This mm-hmm. is the one thing you can't joke about because, you, you know, you, you might set somebody off. You might do these things. And obviously, you don't, you don't want to do that. Like, nobody mm-hmm. wants to do something or say something that could possibly trigger another person. Like, no. Nobody wants that. As someone who goes to the internet being routinely told that I should kill myself. You shouldn't right. say that to people. Right. You should not say that to you people. You shouldn't do anything that's going to make people feel that. Yes. Malicious or accidental. Yes. And like you shouldn't minimize the severity of that, which like I know we talked about it during our Freaky Friday episode where when Lindsay Lohan is throwing a tantrum, she goes, if you don't let me do this, I'll kill myself. And it's one of those things where a lot of people find that scene really, really problematic because they're like, you shouldn't joke about that. Like, that's not funny. But the thing is for a lot of people that is how they deal with those feelings Mm -hmm. like for me especially i joke about my intrusive thoughts and my suicidal ideations all the time because it makes it feel less like a boogeyman to me and it makes it feel less heavy and intense like if it becomes like a thing that i cannot speak of it becomes infinitely scarier like i kind of need to take the piss out of it a little bit oh yeah like we have jokes all the time where you can't eat fish or shellfish and the joke is like, well, we could get shrimp scampi. And you go, yeah, I could. Once. Right. <laughs> and like, I mean, I've written a piece on Medium about like trying to buy my own suicide by buying a filet of fish. Like, mm-hmm. that is a real thing that I have contemplated. Be- and like, that's funny. Like, I don't care who you are. It is so fucking funny to think about somebody who is allergic to fish and suicidal and dies by filet fish mm-hmm. Like, that's fucking funny. I don't care who you are. It is. Just turning into Larry the Cable Guy over there. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. <laughs> and like Get I, her done. <laughs> and, like, I know that there are people that are probably hearing that, like, absolutely not, BJ. That is not funny. That's horrifying. I, I but think I'm that, talking about myself here, so I'm allowed. I think there's a certain level of uh, camaraderie for anyone who's made it this far into the episode, at least I would assume. It's Empire Records. It's I tried to kill myself with a Lady Bick, a pink plastic razor with daisies on it. Like you're allowed to laugh at kind of the absurdity of of 
life and death and mortality and I think it's a matter of you taking ownership of your own life in that regard versus someone else telling you to kill yourself yeah absolutely 100% so I had this experience in high school um, where I was very much fascinated by the concept of suicide Um, not for good reasons I basically was like I'll probably not make it to 25 because I'll be done but I won't kill myself until as long as there's people who need me because that was my thought process. It's like, I can't leave people high and dry. Mm-hmm. And then I was never, I, it's the idea, thing I talked about earlier. I never hit rock bottom. I always had people around who needed me mm-hmm. for one reason or another and therefore just never hit that breaking point. But I was really close a lot of times. Well, now we're married. So now uh, <laughs> you have to live forever. Well, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> but like there's a line in um, a song by Alice Cooper called The Quiet Room. And it's said, and that whole album is about people who are committed to an asylum in the mid 70s and why they're there. And this particular line says, I don't know why suicide appeals to me. And that line always stuck out of my brain where it's like, yeah, I don't know why. And I just wish that people around me had listened at that point in my life when. I had seen this movie and I'd read a, a book called uh, Suicide Notes, a novel, which mm-hmm. I have not revisited. I passed it on to someone else who hopefully it will help them the way it helped me when I was in high school. But when I was actually like kind of healthy and probably at my better point because I was figuring out my gender, I was like, it was like two months out from the end of the school year and I was just fed up with classes because you get wicked senioritis and I'm like, well, I'm not going to live to be 25. What the fuck do I care about college for? Mm-hmm. So I'm in band and I'm not doing anything and the band director's like, well, why, why aren't you playing? Why aren't you putting in any efforts? And I'm like, I'm just done with this and then wave my arm motions around to basically be like, I'm done with band. This doesn't, I don't give a shit about this anymore. And he took that as, oh, God, this child is going to off themselves in the band room. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen on my watch. Mm-hmm. So I got sent to the guidance counselor. They then called my mother. And through a series of three adults in my life who I had the same conversation with of, no, I'm actually pretty okay right now. Um, that I, I just was saying I was done with band. I'm not done with life. I wouldn't confined in like Mr. Barbinski, uh, which that's not his real name if you're curious. But that's you know, just a great fake name you've come up with. It's not that far off. <laughs> but I was if any if I was gonna confide with anyone, it wasn't gonna be him. But no one listened to me. And when it comes to feelings like this, I think you need to actually listen to people and what they are communicating about it. You can't tell them how to feel. You can't tell them mm-hmm. how to cope. If you're making like weird assumptions where you think someone's in like a really bad place where like you report them on Twitter for like, oh, God, they've gone off the deep end. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's what I was thinking about this whole time. If any of you follow me on Twitter, you may see me post randomly where I'll be like, hey, uh, I'm just giving y'all an update. I've been in a really bad place for a while and I've had some really not chill thoughts, um, but I'm good now. So I just wanted you to know. And then I will get like the the fucking concern email from Twitter that's like, somebody was worried about you and self-harm. Here's a list of resources. And I'm like, I literally just said I'm fine. But like, I just, exactly. And, it's like, and I'm glad, I'm glad, the, like, and this is where it gets complicated because like, I'm glad that those systems are in place because there are some people that they need that. They mm-hmm. do need that. I don't though. And <laughs> I don't want it. It's just annoying. I agree. I just... I want people to listen to people. I want people to have people that they can confide in. 
for stuff like this. Um, I know that this is not like that. That is very idealistic. That that is that is a dream world. Uh, that it, and it shouldn't be. But that that's what I want, and that's sort of what this movie is. I mean, yeah, because eventually Zia does find his ex and learns that her reasoning for dying by suicide had nothing to do with him, really. No. I mean, tangentially, kind of, but really, no. No. She killed herself because she followed in her, like, suicide cult leader's footsteps because he was calling to her from beyond the grave. And, like, Zia had nothing to do with that other than, like, she was depressed because of him and then ended up in a cult because of it. Right. He's like the butterfly effect that got there, but it had nothing to do with him. Right. But for most of the movie, he's kind of operating under the assumption that she died by suicide because of like her grief over him and then realizes, oh, wait, no, this isn't about me. She is not the person that she was uh, when I left. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing, too, because it goes back to our original conversation with, you know, his ritualistic cleaning of... We make assumptions about people when they die. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of things end up happening. Like one, we make assumptions about people, but two, we love to like deify people. Oh God. Like here's the thing. I think about my brother and uh, how he got run over by a train. (laughs) I know. I specifically (laughs) phrase it that way because I know it breaks you every single time. Because every time you frame it like that, it's just like. Like God! The train just snuck up on him. Um, <laughs> Stop making me laugh about your brother's tragic death. Everyone's going to think I'm an asshole. I mean, it's fine. He was a racist and a homophobe and a bad person. So um, there is this thought that people had afterwards, which was that, uh, oh, he decided to lay down on the train tracks and not he followed the train tracks home because they were near his house and he wouldn't get pulled over for, by the cops for being drunk in public if he was on, like, like if he was on the sidewalk. There was this idea of like, oh, it's a tragedy because he decided he couldn't take it anymore. And people just want closure. Like they want want narrative closure. They want to know that like he decided that his story was done. He's a good person and we can keep good memories. They want that finality and that satisfaction. And that's not always the case. Sometimes you're just wrong, but you're never going to know that you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, this makes me think a lot of the first like big death that I experienced of somebody that was not like, you know, an elderly great grandparent or something, but like somebody that I genuinely knew and like knew them very well was a friend of mine in high school who I think we've talked about this on the show, but um, he passed away accidentally due to autoerotic asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. The belt got stuck and couldn't get out rather than accept that that is how he died his parents then tried to turn it into this, like, I don't know, like, moral panic kind of thing of, like, beware of the choking game. It's a game where kids choke each other or themselves until they, right before they lose consciousness and then let go because it gives a feeling of euphoria. And it's like, yeah, it's called autoerotic asphyxiation. Like, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but instead this isn't they like flatliners. Right. But instead they like tried to treat it as if like it was like this thing kids are doing to get high. And it's like, no, it's a thing kids are doing to get off. And like this mm-hmm. is a tragedy, but like this was not, you know, an accident because of this like dangerous game. It's like, nah, he had a kink and 
he doesn't have a partner, so he did it himself, and mm-hmm. that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things where, like, you don't want to admit those things out loud because that's difficult. You don't want to it, to, to know the truth about those things because that's harder to process and it's ugly. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to wrap things up nicely in a little bow. Even if it is sad, at least it's, like, good sad. Mm-hmm. It's not embarrassing sad. No, absolutely. The last thing that you want to think about about your kid is that he was jerking off. Right. Nobody wants that. Nobody yeah. wants that to be the you, you knowing don't that, that that's the final moments of your child. Exactly. It's, it's just it's life is messy, man. And we would all be a lot more comfortable with one another if we admitted that, and we just don't want to because it's complicated. Like something that I think is so weirdly poetic and beautiful, right, is this movie ends with McCall, yes, she was there by accident. Mm -hmm. She was not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. She's going to get to go back. And, like, that's great. And Zia's really, you know, torn up about that. And then because of magical Tom Waits happenstance, like, Zia gets to go back too. And, like, you know, they have this newly sun life, and that's wonderful and beautiful and poetic. But what's more beautiful and poetic to me is that Eugene is still in that purgatory because that's where his family is. Mm-hmm. Like he, he met a lady. Yeah. Who does uh, like throat singing. Yeah. She does Inuit throat singing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously Eugene is a music guy like that works really well for him. Mm-hmm. Everything that he has ever needed to like actually feel complete is there. Yeah. So why would he leave? Whereas, like, Zia and McCall found each other, and in order to, like, have that fulfilling life, they need to be together, and McCall was there by mistake. That means Zia's got to go back, too. Mm -hmm. And they go back, and they see each other in the hospital, and they smile, and, like, the look on their faces, you can tell, like, they have the memories from before, which I also love. I love that they're not, you know, like, men in black, where, like, suddenly they don't have memory of each other. It's not this irrelevant thing where it's like, wow, the whole plot didn't matter. Yeah, no, it still matters. They know how they got to that point, mm-hmm. and I love that. I love that they know. I love that they know what it is like to go so far to to feel the absolute lowest that you can feel and to come back. Yeah. Because that is the, 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 the true unfortunate reality is so many people don't get to come back. And you and I are people that have gotten to come back. Mm-hmm. And that's wild as hell <laughs> and like a really hard thing to process. And I mean, admittedly, like I struggle to navigate with it, but that's just because I just am generally mentally ill and I can't control that. Mm-hmm. But when I'm not having like my mental ill like issues, when I am of sound mind, it is like really nice. Like I think about the, those times and like how bad it was. And I'm like, man, I have so much to live for. Like, there's so many things I would have missed out on. Like I would have missed out on meeting you. What the fuck? That's the worst, because you're the best. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) You remember the other day when you were talking about missing things from life and uh, how you wanted to go back, and I told you I didn't miss anything? Yeah. When I'm here, With you, I kind of miss myself the way I used to be. What were you like? I was, I was happy at a time. Obviously, before I came here, but yeah, something about 
being here with you reminds me of that. It's just, I don't know, it's just weird to me that you can feel that in a place like this. We're all, we're all dead. You know what, most of the people that I knew before I got here were either half dead or just completely dead already. Yeah. Completely dead. And you're doing pretty good, Zia. You think so? Yeah, definitely. I guess the thing that I like struggle with now is that uh, since I'm, it's my almost my birthday. I'm turning 31 in a few days after this comes up. Uh, the Monday after this is uploaded, I'm now having this thought every single year where it's like, wow, I lived past 25. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like I'm on borrowed time <laughs> because. I, honestly, the best years of my life have been post 25 years old, but also I didn't plan for my life to go past that. So I've been making it up a lot as I go along. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's I'm not going to lie. It's worked out pretty fucking well for me, all things considered. <laughs> I think you're great. I think having this podcast just as like tangible things in front of me are great. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, I don't I don't know. I guess it's just not something I ever thought thought about at the time because it didn't feel real no and as i'm thinking about it the last time i had made an attempt was like shortly after i got the clean bill of health from cancer mm -hmm. which what a way to celebrate getting you don't have cancer than for your brain to be like <laughs> you should still die though um, cool brain. That's real, really nice of you to have done that. Um, but ever since then, you know, everything has been better in a lot of ways, in most ways, I would say. And that is a really weird thing to grapple with because it, if, I, I'm with you on this. Like, I, I feel a lot that I'm at the, I don't know, I didn't think I'd make it this far yeah. like that just seems to be kind of the perpetual energy and i definitely like will get caught up on it every once in a while where i'll have like one of those intrusive thoughts that's not like super violent and weird but it'll be an intrusive thought about like hey remember when like you should be dead isn't that weird that you're not mm -hmm. huh what's that about and he's just like fuck like that is a thing to think about that is weird yeah and I feel like zia and mccall are gonna have those sorts of thoughts for the rest of their lives whether they stay together or they don't I think that they're going to definitely have those thoughts of like, huh, remember that time we were dead? That was fucking crazy. Yeah, like, that's the thing I'm thinking about this right now, because honestly, I've never really put much thought into what their lives were going to be like after the end of the movie, other than, oh, they'll be together. Like, I never really interrogated, like, what that would look like. Mm -hmm. um, ever since I was, you know, 15, 14 years old, um, and especially more since I've been 25, like, there's always been this persistent thought of, like, well, you know, offing yourself is always an option. That's always a thing. Like, that comes up in my mind, like, every single day. And it, most days I'm fine. Like, I'm perfectly healthy and not upset in any way where I would need to do that or I would want to do that. Um, but the way, the way I'm thinking about this right now, which I've never really thought of it like this before, is that it's kind of like recovering from, I don't know, an addiction mm -hmm. or... Or, or an illness in that, oh, no, I, I had anorexia for 11 years. I'll, I mean, I always, I'll always have an eating disorder. It's just it's not a problem right now. Mm -hmm. You know, when you recover from alcoholism, like, oh, you know, you're always an alcoholic. 
but you're just, you know, on the wagon right now. Mm-hmm. When you've been to the point where you've wanted to kill yourself and have tried to, mm-hmm. it's always kind of a part of you, but mm-hmm. it's not right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because even if it's not something that you're actively like pursuing, like uh, there's no good way to phrase that, you're still going to be living in response to that feeling. Mm -hmm. Even if it's like, you know, I'm, you know, even if like you're a person that's indulging in that behavior, you're either in like indulging in it or you're like completely avoiding it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's a real, why do we not think about it in these terms? Because that is so much more easy to understand when you when you compare it to something like alcoholism or like you're because you're absolutely right like i'm always going to be a person who like i know what i'm capable of like because i've been that far i've I've been pushed that far mm-hmm. i know what that feels like i know that i'm capable of doing it i think so many people are like oh i could never do it mm-hmm. and that's good don't fucking try please don't for the yeah. love of all that is holy do not mm-hmm. um but yeah once once you have been there like you you can't unring that bell you know like that's Mm -hmm. that's not a thing that can happen like it's always part of you and because that's part of your life story and it's just a part that so many people don't want you to have had like they want that chapter to be they want that chapter of your life to be the thing that doesn't make it to the movie version it's too messy we don't want to think about that part it's too dark this this might stir up something in me Right. It's but I don't I don't want to think about you not being here. That's sad. It's like, but I was sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure this is probably not some sort of like mind blowing revelation in like the grand scheme of things. But I've never heard anyone describe it the way that like I had just described it, and that it's like an epiphany for me. It's like, oh yeah, like no, this is just the thing I live with now, mm-hmm. forever, mm-hmm. and that's a thing that regardless of how happy they are, regardless of if they stay together or they don't, Zia and McCall are also going to have that. Yeah. And what they do with it, whether like they avoid thinking about it or it, they use humor as a coping mechanism or just kind of exist quietly in the background, it's a part of them. Yeah. And I think that's that's just that's something I want to be normalized. That's that's what this whole concept of purgatory is, is that this is a part of everyone there. And I think that's why this movie feels good for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't like, oh, hey, I, I hope that I can go visit, you know, purgatory, Arizona. <laughs> right. Like, I don't want that. Right. Um, it kind of sucks there. But knowing that there is a large number of people who can talk candidly about this and it not be like this soul crushing like Shh, no 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 you can't talk about it. like no no uh, you got to you got to be quiet you can't bring that up like mm-hmm. not in polite company mm-hmm. knowing there's people you can actually communicate that with mm-hmm. and then they are receptive and listen to you and it's maybe not so like you know therapeutic in the context of this movie mm-hmm. but that's what is going on yeah very much so and and I mean, this episode might be one that people have conflicting feelings about, and I don't, you know, d- disparage anybody who does have conflicting feelings about this. We've been very casual and candid. Oh yeah, no, this is like we're we're normally like a podcast about coming of age and talking about our experiences along the way. This is 
a lot of life experiences yeah. in, a, in a rough patch. Lots and lots of rough patches in like an hour and a half. Yeah, but that's part of a lot of people's coming of age experience. And it's weird that we don't talk about it. Like, it makes me think of how in recent years there's been this big push of like, we need to talk about how common miscarriages are. We need to start talking about how common it is for people to want to kill themselves mm-hmm. um, because we don't and we don't talk about it for you know for justified reasons in the sense of like hey you don't want to like unintentionally cause harm to other people or like possibly trigger them to the point where they get pushed that far absolutely we shouldn't but I think that we're I think we've got it backwards like, I don't think we need to, like, generate safe spaces for people to, like, make sure that they're protected from from discussions of suicide. We need to make spaces where people can have candid conversations like this. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to have our own, like, weird purgatory road trips where we're able to talk with people who have been there and know what that feels like because so many people feel very alone in having had those feelings. Mm-hmm. Because we're conditioned to not talk about them. Like, mm-hmm. it's a thing that we've overcome, and we should be very proud and thankful and live our life to the fullest. Yeah, but just like in this purgatory, you can have felt the absolute worst in your life and still live in an existence that kind of fucking sucks mm-hmm. and doesn't have stars, and you can't smile. You can try as hard as you want, and you can be like the better team, but sometimes you don't win. Because life sucks. And one character that we have not really even spent any time with almost is Neller, who is played by Tom Waits in this movie. Perfect, perfect, deep-throated angel. Oh, my God. I love Tom Waits, ever since David Bowie died, I've been saying that, like, Tom Waits will be probably, like, the next living person that I will be inconsolable about when he eventually dies, hopefully 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... The line that he has with Zia while discussing the concept of miracles is that it only happens if it doesn't really matter. And I've always read that line as like, well, I mean, everything's a miracle. You know, rainbows are miracles. Uh, The earth and flowers and all of these like things that cosmically have come together after the Big Bang to create the matter and atoms and molecules that is life as we know it. All of it's a little miracle. But the thing that you can't try to do is you can't try to live. Like, it only happens if it doesn't matter. Because if you're trying to live, you're not doing it right. Like, you can't be, like, consciously doing it no more than you should be trying to consciously breathe. Because as soon as you think about your breathing and how it's second nature, it feels wrong. If you think about your life and it's like, oh, I shouldn't feel depressed like this. I shouldn't want, you know, to end my life. I should try harder to not feel that. Then it feels wrong and it feels unnatural because it's supposed to be second nature. Mm -hmm. That's what that whole quote and interaction and scene feels like to me. And if it doesn't matter, then you can put stars in the sky. You can float. You can do all these tiny little insignificant miracles just by going through life. And that's mm-hmm. beautiful, and it's impressive. And I would used to quote the uh, story about the strange tree all the time. Oh, the I crooked will, tree? I will probably put that quote clip right here. 
Once upon a time, it was a crooked tree and a straight tree, and they grew next to each other. And every day, the straight tree would look at the crooked tree, and he would say, you're crooked. You've always been crooked, and you'll continue to be crooked. But look at me, look at me, said the straight tree. He said, I'm tall, and I'm straight. And then one day, the lumberjacks came into the forest and looked around. And the manager in charge said, cut all the straight trees. And that crooked tree is still there to this day, growing strong and growing strange. And what I love so much about that story is like, aside from just like the queerness of being like, ah, yes, cut down all the straight trees. <laughs> aside from that part, obviously, mm-hmm. it's that maybe that tree's not doing the best job of living. It's not mm-hmm. doing what all the, what your other trees are, but like sometimes you grow weird. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you grow on your side and your branches go straight up and it's fucking weird. Mm-hmm. And th- there's really nothing more to say about it. It's just that tree's still living. It's just mm-hmm. doing it a little, a little off. Mm-hmm. A touch a touch queer as it is. Well, on that incredibly thematically appropriate note, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I already know the answer, but for the show format, Harmony, mm-hmm. Risk Cutters, A Love Story, is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? I am very pleased to be able to enthusiastically give this a yes because again i was nervous that it wouldn't hit right Mm -hmm. after not watching it for a long time it's been at least 10 years Mm -hmm. and it still hits me specifically right in all of the things i want out of this story and this world and just the vibes like the plot is so secondary Mm -hmm. to to this where it's like eugene let me drive well drive where (laughs) Over there. <laughs> like, this this plot doesn't really know where it's going, but it's going to get there eventually. Yeah. And I just, I like going along for the ride. Wonderful. Well, friends, if you would like to join us on our ride, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends Up Frog. That was smooth. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, I like got through half the sentence and I was like, oh no, I'm going to start laughing because I just realized how smooth that was. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor underscore trap underscore tour. And huge thank you as always to the Sounder Bombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band? are you recommending based off of Risk Cutters, A Love Story? So I brought up a bunch of bands earlier when I was gushing about how much Gogol Bordello meant to me in terms of like discovering a world of music. Uh, Unfortunately, most of the bands that fit in that world uh, that I love and discovered through them don't really work for plugs because all of them broke up and I would like to plug someone who's actually still touring and releasing music. That's thoughtful of you. I, someone who can benefit from it, you know? Right. So I am shouting out to the uh, folk musician Ben Kaplan. He's a, a bearded baritone singer from Nova Scotia. Love it. Uh, he's got a very uh, gravelly Tom Waits way of singing that is both uh, very heartfelt, but also like absolute like chest punching and like sandpapery when needed. Mm-hmm. Um, the specific album that I want to shout out is from a few years ago. It's called Old Stock. 
and it is an album that was released with a stage show. It is all about immigration, specifically of a Jewish couple immigrating in like the early 1900s to Canada. Oh, cool. And it fits really well with like Gogol Bordello's music in this, particularly like Through the Roof and Underground and the concept of immigration and how we're all immigrants here, Eugene. Mm-hmm. I would say there's parts of this story that are very, very dark. But mm-hmm. also parts that are very fun because life is, is full of a lot of emotions and feelings. And I recommend anyone who wants like a very theatrical and intense but also joyful story to give a old stock a listen. That sounds perfect. Thank you. I worked really hard on that plug. <laughs> well, friends, thank you so much for listening. And we hope that you enjoyed this very, you know, kind of dark conversation. You know, we didn't cry or anything. So like... I got close. 10 points to both of us for not crying. If, if I was ever going to cry during an episode, it's probably this one, and I made it through. <laughs> well, that means I'm still way ahead on the leaderboard of crying on there. <laughs> I was never going to catch you. <laughs> All right, friends. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.